Greetings, Mr. and Mrs. Middle America and all the ships at sea. This is Ian punted in for George Norrie. And to the uh, hostile, invading alien armies hovering silently just behind their cloaking devices outside of Earth's atmosphere, remember, eat the Canadians first. And I wasn't even going to lead with that tonight. But since we have this story coming out of Russia that they claim to have shot down a mysterious ball-shaped UAP, I thought, worthy of mentioning. Uh, Tonight, there was some backstage drama I was sharing on Twitter. At Deacon Punnett is my Twitter handle. And it was about uh, our original guest, uh, Billy Vera, who I've been looking forward to talking to. He's a music historian as well as a songwriter and a singer, producer, actor. He was in Buckaroo Banzai, for God's sakes. I mean, he's been acting for a long time, too. But he, he just knows all this cool stuff about kind of the secret history of pop music. And that's what I love doing those music shows. It just sort of you take something that you you think you know. You've heard it a million times. And then you actually get down to how did something come to be or what did it take for something to catch on? And you realize oh, there's so so much we just don't know about the machinations in our popular culture. We'll do it again sometime. I, ho- I hope he's feeling better soon. Um, but it, it, I looked out because, as I tweeted out earlier, we had already been in conversation with Rick Prado. He is the um, author of this very, very successful book from the past year that I've been sort of circling around about black ops, the life of... Uh, a CIA shadow warrior. And I've been on this spy jag lately, watching all of these shows on TV, Netflix, going movies. I don't know why. I've just been sort of this deep dive into espionage on various levels of authenticity, right? And we'll get to that coming up with, with Rick, I'm sure. But, um, but I mean, I, I've been watching Slow Horses on Apple, which is Apple TV Plus, which is a terrific British show with Gary Oldman. Uh, and then also this kind of silly, frothy thing called The, the Recruit on Netflix, which is, you know, it's, it's Johnny Quest. It's fun. Uh, and then there's, like in all these other shows, in between it i don't know why i can't get lately i've been watching sort of bond movies and did uh, spend some time with some of the bond themes and i'm kind of I'm, i think there's just so much there in the shadows that i that always gets me thinking what do we don't what don't we know and we know very little i think or do we uh, and so it's the life of a CIA shadow warrior that we'll be exploring tonight. Thank you, Rick Prado, for jumping in um, and giving us this opportunity on short notice. Then we'll go to open lines coming up for the rest of the night. I'm just going to do tonight. And then there's this cool show on Nazi history coming up tomorrow night on Coast to Coast. And then I'll be back again next weekend, Friday and Saturday, and I'll I'll do the usual lineup that we do in January. But, you know, obviously the big story, Uh, weather's calm. People seem to be safe tonight. Some storms in California on the coast, some more snow, more rain coming, but... Uh, the big story tonight is we finally have a Speaker of the House. It was settled in the last 30 minutes or so. Uh, bottom of the 15th, 
before we got a winner. Uh, Team Kevin beat out the Never Kevins. The final score was uh, two sixteen to two twelve. Uh, before the uh, before Team Kevin uh, could claim victory, uh, and this beat the previous record. Uh, for the longest such thing, uh, when the May 1st, 1920 meeting of the Brooklyn Robins and the Boston Braves went the distance. Still holds the record. Brooklyn jumped out to a one to nothing lead in the fifth inning. Thanks to a leadoff walk that turned into a runner on second. And then a few moments later, Ivy Olsen dropped an RBI single for the first run of the game. Then there was... One in the bottom of the sixth that tied it, and so it remained. Uh, but it, we we finally got it settled, and the uh, the Never Kevins lost, I guess, or we don't know what they gave up to win. I don't know. A lot of backdoor deals that I'm sure we'll still just be learning about. But here's what we know at the end of a very busy news week. Damar Hamlin is breathing on his own. And talking. That did not seem likely somehow. Earlier in the week, not when he was being defibbed on the field between the Bills and the Bengals. Actor Jeremy Renner played chicken with a seven and a half ton snowplow and won. And Kevin McCarthy is Speaker of the House. And I'm not sure of those three which one is the biggest miracle. But none of those will be on discussion for tonight. Tonight it's going to be about espionage. And we're going to find out just what it is that's happening in the shadows of our nation. And it, on the on the battlefields and in the cities and in the alleyways across the world. From a guy who knows. A shadow warrior who's been there. And now he's written about it. In the book Black Ops, Rick Prado is next on Coast to Coast AM. This is Ian Punnett. Uh, Rick Prado is the uh, the man that every person I know wants to be. <laughs> Thanks for giving us time tonight on Coast to Coast. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it, Ian. I'm going to read a little bit of your bio. And I say, I stress little bit. <laughs> we could give up 15 minutes doing this. It's pretty cool. Um Enrique Rick Prado is a paramilitary counterterrorism and special clandestine operations specialist with a focus on international training operations and programs. Uh, A 24-year veteran of the CIA served as an operations officer in six overseas posts. He was deputy chief of station and plank owner. I'm going to ask more about that on the original bin Laden task force. Uh, he spent his first 10 years at the CIA as a paramilitary officer, um, and he originally came before all of this uh, uh, service to our country. He was originally born in Cuba, um, and his native language, Spanish, has come in quite handy in your operations around the world. But you're also pretty well rated in Japanese, which is kind of cool. Um, so a, a, a true... Man of the world, um, thank you for your service. I, I'm going to try to 
I will just tell you in advance, if I ask any questions that seems out of bounds, I'm not, I won't be offended, and I don't mean to pry, so I'll be curious, but you don't obviously have to answer anything that you're not comfortable with or anything that might get you in trouble with, uh, with the CIA. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that courtesy. Let me give you two observations on your book cover, okay? Looking at your photo, I can just tell you smell good. <laughs> It depends what I'm doing. Yeah, no, that that's like <laughs> you're a man who knows how to dress, and I and I would say probably you're a guy who doesn't use too much cologne because you look like a man who appreciates who appreciates style, and you understand that uh, a man's um, the essence of a man shouldn't extend too much further beyond his own presence, as opposed to the guy sitting next to me at a table last night who wore like half a bottle of cologne, and I was. <laughs> It's like there was a cloud around him. It was awful. Uh, and then the other thing is, on your cover, there's a there's a knife. And I, you know, I, I've read enough of these uh, books over the years that I'm always curious to see what is that symbolic thing. Is it a a silhouette image of Congress? Is there is there something that looks particularly uh, something we might invoke as being kind of clandestine is there a gun and on the cover of your book uh, black ops there's a knife can you explain that a little better yeah i think you you touched on it a little bit there is a certain uh, mystique to the knife uh it's a a weapon of stealth um and it's very practical um for us operationally there are places you cannot carry a gun so having some knowledge of handling a knife and having the right knife with you uh, can be a lifesaver. Um, but the real reason, well, the, the main reason is knives scare the crap out of me. So I figure that if they scare me, they're going to scare anybody else. So that's why I carry it up. I love that answer um, because I, I, he, knives, as, as I would understand it, obviously just um, as an observer, is that that's an intimate weapon. You have to be within at least arm's length of somebody, you know, other than a throwing knife or something, to be able to effectively use a knife. And that does not – the one you have there doesn't seem to be the throwing kind of knife. But um, but it, it also – I mean that knife looks very nefarious, right? So is that is that knife that's on the cover of Black Ops, the life of a CIA shadow warrior, is that a standard issue knife? No, we, we don't have that kind of pattern. Uh, obviously, we want to be able to vary everything. If everybody in CIA carries the same uh, you know, bag or the same glasses, it's, it's kind of like a telltale. Right. Uh, I think knives are more uh, of a choice. And, you know, and, and like a gun, um, there's no gun for all seasons or holsters for all reasons. Sometimes all you can get away with is a small pistol in your pocket. Other times you can c- c- carry loaded. It, it all depends on what the uh, your mission is, and the knife that applies to the knife also. Okay, so this would be one of those questions I warned you about, and and I, I, I'm gonna I preface it with that when you you put a knife in a cover like that, and I think about okay that you are you did live the life of a CIA shadow warrior. It leaves me thinking that you've used one of those at least once. Um, uh, on in, in a special in a black op somewhere, yes. I think it has dissuaded uh, individuals from doing the harm uh, <laughs> once or twice. Uh, 
persuaded. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, you and your and your little friend. Um, all right. So I, I, I. I I find black ops, and when you, especially when I was looking at when you're talking about that you were on the operations side of the CIA, I am reminded of this. Show, it's it's a frivolous show, but it's been kind of fun to watch. Called the Recruit, and right. th- there's a big emphasis in the Recruit between the different sides of the CIA. One of which I hadn't given much thought to, which is the legal side of the CIA, the people that are there, the attaches that make sure that everything that is done is done by the book or needs to be. And there's a conflict between the ops people and the and the lawyer people. And since I never really spent a lot of time thinking about that, it's sort of new to me. Is there Does that have the ring of truth that there are these divisions within the CIA which make it for what other people refer to it as the company, you know, that this is much more the corporate side of espionage? Well, the, the, the agency is divided into directorates, and the directorate of operations, uh, the clandestine service, is where I served all my career. We have the analytical side, which is the, the, uh, the director of intelligence, and all these things are changing now because it, they're, they're, they're doing some uh, revamping here for the last couple of years. Um, the lawyer issue or the uh, lawyer phenomena, I would say, is, is, a, is a creature of the early 90s. Um, in the early 90s, there was probably five lawyers in all of, all of CIA. Mm. Um, but with time, uh, the, uh, we, we have every single area division and every component has at least one and sometimes two. In, in the counterterrorist center where I worked for half of my career, um, we had some really good lawyers. And the, the beauty of a good lawyer at the agency is the guy or the gal that doesn't say no. They tell you, let's see how we can make this legal. Because the biggest fantasy and that I try to attack in my book is the fact that the agency is law-abiding, that even when we do black ops, they are blessed at the highest level of the U.S. government. Um, so uh, lawyers that, that could actually sit down and say, okay, this is – you know, we, after 9-11, we need a presidential finding, and we got it on 17 September. Um, so, yeah, but that's a really interesting way of looking at it. So it's you within the bounds of here's what you here's here's the absolute cannots over here. Then here's that gray area, which we're not going to ask too many questions about. Is that roughly the how something like that would be in a line of demarcation? Well, I, I think the way that a good attorney handles it is he's figures out a way to get the right approvals. For example, uh, for some operations post-9-11, uh, we, w- we would go to DOJ, the, uh, the interrogation, the enhanced interrogation programs. Now, I wasn't involved with those, but I know because I went to right. Sears School in the military, so it's the same thing. But we went to DOJ, the Department of Justice, and, and asked if these things were actually legal. And everybody that was briefed agreed, and, and though it makes that signature easier for a president. We, we normally work those kind of big cases under a presidential finding, which means the president tells you this is what we need you to do. Hmm. And that presidential finding is the aegis, which then allows you to make the boots on the ground decisions to achieve that goal. Absolutely. Okay. And without that, then, what would your life be like if you didn't have that type of, for lack of a better 
concise term, legal protection to do that, what does, what would that expose you to? Well, it's not what it would expose you to, it's what it makes you. If mm. you do not have the moral high ground in, in, the, in the legal, by our, by our standards, you cannot just right. judge, you know, the enemy standards, or those are, or in most cases, are very different. Uh, so for us, it would be, we would be a rogue organization, which is how we most often depict it anyway, um, doing whatever we wanted, when, whenever we wanted, and nothing could be further from the truth, you know, from that truth. Well, post nineties, because prior to that, if there were such a, if there was a paucity of, of attorneys, say in the sixties, then perhaps it was more prone to going rogue. At one point in the past, would you? That would be like the pre-church committee kind of work. Would you agree with that? Not entirely, and I'll tell you why. Because the the uh, the agency is guided by what the administration wants. Uh, there's a there's a system called the direct um, directives, operational directives, that every year the agency puts out to every single component, and this is you know coordinated from from the, the right people in Congress to, to, the, to, to the White House, what are our priorities, whether it's, you know, in this case, terrorism, or it says back now Russia has come back right. to, to the top tier, China is up there. So, uh, but back in the 60s, of course, it was also a different culture. you got to remember that in the 60s, the, the Russians, were, the Soviets, were using a lot dirtier tactics in, in the Cold War than the years that I started serving. They were still using surrogates, the Cubans and the Nicaraguans were wreaking havoc all over Latin America. But, I mean, it was a different epoch. It was a different war. It's like I'm trying to compare World War One with Korea. Uh, there, there's different epochs that right. call for different rules. Yeah, okay, and I'm going to, again, I'm going out on a limb here, but I, I think I've, I've read enough, I've studied enough formally on the subject to say that there were times when the objectives of the CIA were not in concert with the presidency. And we had some examples, famous examples of Eisenhower being very concerned about how the military industrial complex was out of control. And Kennedy himself feeling as though that the CIA was kind of running its own game. It may be fair to say that there's more often than not consistency between the executive branch and our intelligence community, but it hasn't always been that way. And when it's not, that's when weird things happen. And and I totally agree. And and, and my point is that we have incredible oversight to everything that we do. And uh, one of one of the problems is that part of our our charter is protecting the president of the United States. Right. Um, you know, so uh, there, there comes things that you can talk about, the things that you cannot talk about. Uh, but I totally agree with you. I mean, the, the ground rules. I I was blessed with the fact that I came into the agency in the early '80s where we were fighting communism. The gloves were off, but it was within the legalities that we impose on ourselves. Uh, And it was directly, in this case, it was Reagan who started that program. Um, So, yep, I totally agree with you. Oversight's important. By the way, my uh, 
my sister-in-law is from Cuba, and she had a very similar story as where she came over. I think she was four, and when she and her family left, her, her father was kind of a low-level politician, like an alderman or something like that. So not a big shot, but um, they got out of Cuba – uh, they were one of the last flights to get out of Cuba, and they there there was some ceremonial like firing of weapons as the plane took off, and she landed in the United States and built a beautiful life for herself and my brother and she have been married forever, um, and her parents um, uh, we celebrated every we had Cuban. Um, Cuban Thanksgiving, Cuban Christmas, and Cuban Easter with my sister-in-law's parents. Uh, and so there were moments when I'm reading your, your bio and I'm thinking, that that just sounds really familiar. And I I think of uh, particularly her mother, Gume, was, was very sweet to me. Never bothered to learn English, or at least she never let on to how much English she was picking up in the room. Uh, but uh, but that's, uh, that's a great start for our guest, Rick Prado. So Enrique Prado, uh, the author of Black Ops. We're going to talk for a while before we open the phones, and then after that we'll do open lines, too, coming up later on tonight. And for George Nori, this is Ian Punnett on Coast to Coast AM. Rick Prado, author of Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. Boy, I'm getting a ton of questions right away on Twitter. It's unusual, actually, that many that fast out of the gate. But welcome to share those coming up. I'll get as many in as I can before we open up the phones for you next hour. A lot of ground to cover in this this life of, of a guy who worked on the operational side of the CIA uh, and has written a, a memoir of sorts, but also perhaps uh, an explanation, maybe another way to to offer it, where he's really willing to kind of pull back that that foggy curtain uh, and show us how things work. And he'll do that coming up next on Coast to Coast AM. This is Ian Punnett. As it says on the jacket in the promotional material for uh, Rick Prado's book, Black Ops, a harrowing memoir of life in the shadowy world of assassins, terrorists, spies, and revolutionaries. Um, So, Rick, before we get back into more serious stuff, stupid question. Do you enjoy watching uh, espionage media, you know, reading books, listening to podcasts, watching TV? I uh, I have a, a very low tolerance for um, <laughs> what I'm watching, um, and, and to tell you the truth, you you mentioned the Bond movies that, that you that you uh, that right? you watch sometimes. The the beauty of that is that we know it's fantasy. So you know I'm still right. for my Austin Martin, right? So you know right. we, we know that that is. It. And, and I will tell you, I think that the best <laughs> promotional thing that the Brits ever did was to create James Bond. Um, but I know that that's a fantasy. What bothers me is when I see movies like Jason Bourne, for example, right. that always portray in, in our individuals as maniacal assassins with 17 personalities doing something right. that Congress doesn't even know we're doing, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so when, when movies take that direction – which is too many of them, uh, I, I go the other way. Right. There are a few out there and a few movies and a few programs that are tolerable, and, and we, we understand there's got to be a little bit of Hollywood to it uh, for to catch their, to everybody's attention. All right, name one. 
Well, I, I think movies-wise, the, the best one of the best CIA movies is called Argo. Oh, yeah. Um, Argo, it was a fantastic sure. movie. Uh, it was a very true story. It was uh, We had some hostages. Right. We had the hostages in Iran, but we also had some who had been able to escape to a safe house. And this um, operations officer, he was uh, he did you know, the, the, the fake IDs and all that other right. stuff. Literally put this incredible operation together in Iran while everything was going hot. Right. And he got he got the people out. So movie wise, that's that's one of the ones that I think huh. it's a uh, a very strong one. Zero Dark Thirty. Um, yeah. It's a pretty decent one. I love that movie. It, it is. It is. It is well done, and, and of course, a, a lot of it is based on on Jennifer Matthews, which, who was right. a, a colleague of mine in in the uh, Bin Laden task force. She was one of my analysts uh, when, when we started the unit in '96. Um, but there was also some real misguided uh, things in that movie, and the one that bothered, I think, most of us the most was the fact that th- how they portrayed what enhanced interrogations are yeah. like. Right. You know, they, they, and, and that that came out more of a, uh, you know, there, there was, uh, I think it was Abu Ghraib or something. That was right, Army right, right. Breaking point. Yeah, and, and that place, there were amateurs that were not supervised, and, and things went really, really stupid. But the movie confuses that. The, the, the average person looking at the movie oh, that's says, a good point. oh, so this is what they do, and, and, and it is not. You know, our waterboarding, in the movies, it's always a bucket of water over a rag over your face and all that right. other stuff. Um, when are we did the waterboarding, and like I said, I wasn't part of that, but what, what the agency did for waterboarding comes out of the enhanced interrogation training that we, the special military, that you know that's where I started, um, goes under. It's called SEER school. And it, it's literally on a gurney. The guy is monitored. They have blood pressure cuffs on them, everything else. And there's time limits of how long you could do it. It's more of a tool to speed up the breakdown of the individual because the real breakdown is music going 24/7, being you know not letting not letting you sleep, the sleep deprivation. All these things are the things that that, that wear people out. And the waterboarding is just uh, that one extra little nudge to get them to tell us what we need to do. You know, the, there was a a scene. Um, about waterboarding in a movie called Safe House with Denzel Washington, right? Yes, and yes, yeah. R- Ryan Reynolds. What I like about that, there was a, the scene that I liked is he's going into the detail of the 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 cotton used in the towels because <laughs> because operationally he knew what would be more effective to use on him, you know, because he'd done that to other people. So he knew the right weight of the towel to use. I thought that was, there was that little detail I was thought was that stuck with me. Thought on that? It's, it's a good Hollywood angle. And, and obviously it did its job. It got your attention and, and oh, yeah. you enjoyed it. But I guarantee you that you, in no case officer I ever will know um, I have ever met will will know what size towels we use for, for waterboarding, <laughs> and if they do, they probably would admit it anyway. So yeah, <laughs> I, my I mean, other than the Bond movies, which is interesting to me because I think Daniel Craig's Bond is the yeah. most seems like the thing that's closest to the grittiness of what a black ops guy would be like, but I've just put that off to the side for the moment. I think Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy 
um, the Jean Le Carré book and the, mm-hmm. the movie based on that. I, what I really liked about it, it, that does stress this whole bureaucracy of intelligence gathering and all the multi and, and having to keep track of the paperwork and the recordings and and it, it you know the library of information and all the forms you have to fill out. And I think there are some aspects of that which obviously don't necessarily add well to a Hollywood production, but those are the reality of your life is there are forms involved, right? I mean, you aren't just like sent off. You you do have to write up operations reports, right? And you have to sort of explain what happened. Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, we get get almost as much training in in writing and expressing ourselves succinctly because when we write an intelligence report, that your goal is for that to hit Congress the following day. If you're if you if you if you score one of those, so when we write something, it has to be succinct, and it has to be accurate, and and it has to be truthful. Uh, that's one of the big things in the in, in the agency that again is never highlighted in in the media is the fact that our integrity. If if you want to get fired by the agency in a nanosecond, steal a dollar from the agency or. Um, misinterpret an intelligence to make it sound better than what it was. It will get you fired and kicked out and your clearances revoked and, and you name it. Interesting. Um, and and, as, and as, as well as it should be, yes. Uh, well, then let me amend this part of your biography. So, uh, Rick Prado spent his first 10 years at CIA um, but the training includes airborne scuba, advanced combat, medical rescue, seer, uh, mountain climbing, jungle survival, and writing really good reports. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a line in the recruit, which is interesting, where they, somebody said, well, how, how do I – he's a new guy in the CIA. He said, how do I do that? And he said, fly coach, um, get a – like mid-range rental car and save all your receipts. <laughs> we don't call it the company for nothing. And I thought, okay, again, that seemed like a truthful moment for for at least for these types of movies. Well, and, and there there was some levity in that scene. I, I did watch that first episode. Did I, you? It's not my yeah. style of movie, but I, I, I watched it. But there's certain levity there. But it's true. I mean, our accountings have to be um, very very sharp, and I'll explain why. Because we work under what they call fenced funds. The Congress approves, the agency approves to each area division what they can spend on what kind of programs. So it is sacrosanct for you to, if you get $10 million to work this particular account, just because you got a million dollars left over that account, you just cannot take that money and say, well, I'm going to put that money over here because come September we're going to lose it. Uh, So that's for, for us accounting uh, both at the micro and the macro level, are very, very important in the agency. Yeah, it's look. You never saw James Bond write a, 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 an after-action report, did you? No, no. I don't no. think even the books mention him having to write yeah. up <laughs> after-action. You know? That's very funny, uh, Rick Prado. This is so enjoyable. Thank you so much again for stepping in. The uh, book is Black Ops. It's gone very well. Are you ready for this? Is it? Is it already have this been optioned for something I'm going to be seeing on Netflix coming up? We're actually working on uh, pitching uh, a uh, – putting together a proposal to the, you know, Netflix, Amazon, or whatever. Uh, but it, it's not going to be a documentary. Um, they're going for more of a miniseries and, you know, like keeping as much truth about how the agency operates and, you know, and, and the, re- right. the, the reality of our work. 
And, you know, from, from reading the book, you know that in, in, in our there's, there's all kinds of sexy operations that we describe there. Right. Um, you know, they're just not the Hollywood version of the things that we see. They're still dangerous. Uh, we don't have 139 stars in our, in our wall uh, because this is a hobby. You know, there's people right. that have sacrificed their lives for all of this. So, um that that is that is the, that that's very accurate. Very accurate. I, has have any of those stars ever come down? What do you mean? Well, so reports are reports, right? And uh, epochs of history have different sort of operational understandings. What's that? So I no, wonder I, whether yeah, I, I, anybody's ever been reconsidered of like, no, that shouldn't be up there. No, I mean uh, th- these are all very clear-cut cases. Uh, okay. You know the um, the um, parameters are very well delineated. You know, if you are in harm's way in the agency carrying out a legal ma- mission, like, like all our missions are, and you lose your life, um, that that star will go on the wall and 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 will remain there. Now, the one thing that can change, and it has in certain cases, earlier stars that we could not say who they were. After a certain amount of time, the agency has said, okay, it's time to honor this individual so their family can really know uh, because the, the operations say well, he was in were 30 years ago. Uh, right. That's about the only change to, to the stars there. And unfortunately, what we keep doing is adding. Uh, you figure uh, almost a third of those, uh, the, those stars that we have on the wall are post-9-11. Interesting. Sad, but very interesting. Um, I, I, several people have uh, uh, s- t- tweeted to me about Annie Jacobson's book, Surprise, Kill, Vanish, and asked whether you would share your opinion on that. Well, I, I have to share really good opinions because I'm in that book. Um, I, there's actually a certain, certain, several pages on, on me on that book. It's an excellent book. Uh, compiling of information. Annie, I know Annie personally. I I helped her um, with certain parts of that book uh, that were authorized. But um, the amount of research that she did and the the wide audience that she canvassed uh, within the agency and within the community uh, in, in our special military um, a lot of a lot of that book has the, the the main protagonist is a guy named Billy Waugh, who's a very very dear friend of mine. Billy Waugh was a Green Beret legend in Vietnam during the early years. Did twenty some years in the agency. Uh, he is the guy that was doing surveillance on Bin Laden when we started the Bin Laden task force. Mike Scheuer and myself. Um, he is the guy that captured Carlos the Jackal, Elix Ramirez. Right. Yeah, the, the infamous uh, terrorist. He's the one that sure. found him in in, uh, in Khartoum. So, uh, yeah, the book is excellent. It's it's one of the books that I recommend. And anytime somebody tells me that they want to know a little bit more about special operations, because it's not just intelligence. There's a lot of military in, in the book. Excellent book. Yeah. It, it, so th- this may be a more of a disparity between central intelligence and military intelligence. But I remember when and somebody asked me to ask you about this, when Manuel Noriega was, you know, was holding up in his palace and wouldn't come out and they were blasting him. But twenty four seven with uh, with rock music like Panama by Van Halen. Um 
Was that like? I mean, it seemed kind of amateurish. To be totally honest, I didn't. I didn't. I, I never found that very clever. But is that does that sort of thing work? And what was the general feeling about that at the time? Well, I, I wasn't directly involved with it. I do know some people that were. Um, a lot of that was the military had the operational control for it because it wasn't, you know, was an invasion for lack of, you know, a better term. Uh, in in order to to get him out of power and, and, and slow down the the narco trafficking that he was uh, supporting, um, but you know in, in in war and this was a war there are no rules you know whatever uh, whatever you want to do whatever you want to try if it works it's good if it didn't work it's not good yeah. um, and, and you learn from that but uh, yeah innovation and creativities are huge tools in the intelligence community because I think that's what we use the most is that uh, you know the, the, be able to come up with with something that gets you to where not the average individual could ever get to yeah but so that seemed more like theater put on for the 24/7 you know news channels and if it's can't, it just sort of seemed doomed from the beginning if you could defeat the sound and the lights with a couple of wads of toilet paper in your ears and a rag. <laughs> you could yeah. get to sleep. It wasn't going to be like lying on a floor going, I can't take it anymore. You know, it just didn't seem like that was going to be very effective. No, and, and, and that wouldn't happen. I think that, again, it's just, it was just one more tool that they were using to harass him, to uh, demoralize him and his troops. So, um, right. But no, it, that singularly, that would have actual, absolutely no uh, yeah. major impact on anything. So, I can't imagine. Now, I, I want to ask you about an illegal operation um, because we've been talking about the legal stuff, and you mentioned too about you know steal a dollar, um, misconstrue a report to your own advantage or something. And that brings me to um, something which we talked a lot about the show on the show over the years and what was originally sort of passed off and then dismissed and now verified, which is the MK Ultra program of the illegal human experimentation that was undertaken by the CIA. I'm not holding you responsible for it. My question is, where would MK Ultra have fallen under that operational structure of the CIA. Do you have any idea? Well, you know, uh, well, first of all, you're talking something that I was probably still in Cuba when some of the right, totally. Going on. Yeah, so, I, that's you know, what I'm so saying. I'm not. It's not it, you. It, I'm not putting it at your feet. Not, but and, and most of the people that I work with were from a different epoch anyway. But uh, a, the the, uh, the uh, CIA has a medical division, uh, Office of Medical Services, and they are doctors, psychiatrists, medics, um, and there's also the director of science and technology, which is usually more of the high tech, anything from satellites to, you know, uh, lizard size uh, bugs that they could put in your house or whatever. Right, right. Um, but they, they would also be, um, you know, in charge of any kind of those experiments. The uh, when we say illegal, uh, I don't know. Again, I wasn't there, but was this something that was unilaterally decided by the agency? Was it something that the military was also doing? Was it something that was approved at a higher level? And that we will probably never know. Yeah. Um, Okay, so uh, poisons come up a a little bit. You know, the, the... this idea that especially when it comes perhaps to used on our people or used on 
um, uh, you know, like in England or some that that Russian operatives will use poison or they'll use um, radioactive material or some barium or something. Um, The bugs and gas stuff, that kind of thing. Where is the CIA on that these days operationally? You know, that's never been a tool that I have ever witnessed or even heard of being used. Um, the um, By the CIA. The, by, the, by the CIA, yeah, of course, yeah. by the CIA. The, the Russians are are known for that kind of, of operation where they, where they will hunt some anybody who betrays them or anybody who they believe is going to betray them. You know, they, they will do exactly what you just described. Um, the Chinese will will uh, compromise. You know they're they're very good at putting a you know a incredibly striking woman or male, depending where where you at, uh, and compromise yeah. you, drug you, uh, all this kind of stuff. I never witnessed that in the agency in, in, in any of my time. I don't even know why, in some respects, with all of the modern technology now on morphing of images, the you know the creation of false videos, all of the techno. I don't even know why you'd even have to bother to do um, a compromise like that when you could just as easily fake it, you know, in a computer. But hang on to that thought. Well, that's where we'll hold it for now. Talking to Rick Prado, Black Ops is the name of the book. It's super cool. So is he, as you can hear. And we'll get back to this in uh, uh, just a few minutes, and then we'll get to your phone calls to Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. And then an hour from now, we'll go to Open Lines 2 coming up. Coast to Coast AM, this is Ian Punnett.